Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. We are very happy to be joined today by retired U.S. Navy Admiral Mike Mullen, a good friend of ours. From 2007 to 2011, Admiral Mullen was the 17th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest-ranking officer in the United States military and the principal military advisor to both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. During his long and very distinguished career in the U.S. Navy, Admiral Mullen has held a variety of commands from serving as the commander of the gasoline tanker USS Noxabee to commanding the United States Second Fleet. And prior to his service as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen served as the chief of naval operations, the vice chief of naval operations, and the commander of the United States Naval Forces Europe, making him one of the very few admirals in the history of the U.S. to hold four four-star admiral posts. In total, his decorated career spanned 43 years. And we are really honored to have you with us today, sir. It's it's great to see you here. Oh, it's great to be both with both of you again. Uh, I know we haven't seen each other for a while. It's just immediately a real strong connection. No, you're, you've been a great role model to so many folks. And um, the number of young people, whether they're in the Foreign Service or in the military, the number of people that you have mentored over the years, it's in the thousands. So, you know, Kurt and I are one of one of your followers. So th- thank you so much. <laughs> Actually, two of two. <laughs> yeah, two. One, right. two. <laughs> I want to, um, if I could just start, you know, back the back to the start of your career, sure. um, and just give us a little bit of a sense of how you even got into the Navy, because a lot of people don't know you were living in California. Your family was connected to the entertainment industry. You were in Hollywood. That's a long way from Annapolis. Yeah, I got it. I, I grew up in Hollywood. My dad was a, a publicity guy, a public relations agent, really with an A list uh, group of clients. Um, uh, although I, you know, where I grew up, I mean, he, he didn't bring work home per se, so it was kind of fun to know about these individuals who are in TV and movies uh, and on stage. But um, uh, for the most part, I enjoyed this, what I'll call idyllic childhood. Mm-hmm. Grew up in the same house, you know, middle-class family, went to two Catholic schools. And uh, what happened my junior year, actually my senior year in high school, a good friend of mine from the previous year had come to the Naval Academy, play football. Mm. And I love sports. I was a basketball player. And and uh, his dad, who was a Beverly Hills cop, uh, kept chasing me about, you ought to really look at this. Uh, and, uh, you know, over a period of time, my senior year, uh, I started to look at it. Uh, I knew I needed, uh, I was a decent student, not a great student. I'd I'd uh, had a good time socially in high school. Uh, I needed. I knew I needed to go somewhere that uh, would provide the discipline and the structure. And the Naval Academy came along, and recruited me to play basketball. So I got on a plane, flew to Baltimore, and and uh, with what was then a two-year plan, you know. And forty-seven years later, I I left. So and I felt blessed because I met. What happened there was I met young people, men back then, um, uh, I, I met them from all over the country and they were good young guys and they became great friends and they're still friends to this day. So it was pretty special. That's an amazing story. What do you, what do you say to young people as you go around the country and talk to them? Because when you look at the numbers 
of folks serving on active duty. Yeah. You know, we're down to less than one half of 1% of Americans yeah. serving on active duty, which is creating a real chasm yeah. in, in the country. There's yeah. a real distance between those who serve and, and those who, who don't the rest of the country. What do, you, what do you say to young folks about, you know, doing what you did or at least giving, giving uh, military service a shot? Well, one of the things I, I talk about First of all, that decision, I was all of 17 years old. And, and uh, again, I had a two-year plan, which uh, didn't work out really uh, very well from the standpoint of what the plan was. Uh, but I encourage them to keep their options open, first of all. Second, I do talk about this divide. Uh, both of you know me well enough to know that was something that concerned me when I was in those senior jobs. Uh, we, I, we become further and further, because we're so small, as a percentage of the country, we come from fewer and fewer places. There are fewer families in the country that have any connection to the military whatsoever. And I worry a great deal about our military being separated from the American people. So I encourage them to think about service, uh, not just in the military, but service in the local community, in their, in their city, in their state, or in their government, uh, or in an NGO around the world uh, in order to try to make a difference. And I, what I have found is young people are thirsty to do that. So I try to give them some either guidance and direction and help in some cases as they look to transition as they graduate from college or university to try to do that. So as long as they're serving in some capacity, that's, that's important. Yeah. Now, one of the subsets of folks that haven't served are members of Congress. That number yeah. has gone way yeah. down. Um, what are the implications of that? I think pretty significant. Actually, honestly, more significant than I realized as I watched those numbers come down over the years. Um, uh, and I got uh, very exposed to that because I supported a group called With Honor in this last election that was supporting military veterans, uh, Republicans and Democrats who were running for Congress for the first time to try to raise uh, help them raise initial money because that's the toughest money to get in an election campaign when you're doing it for the first time. Mostly because of my experience, obviously, as a veteran, but also knowing about their life experience, even at a young age, that they've met people from all over the country, in many cases all over the world. They have an understanding for uh, how other people live and other and different cultures. And this group in particular was willing to reach across the aisle. They, they want to try to solve this, this partisanship uh, and be leaders in that regard. The, the other thing that concerns me in Congress and actually in the country is the, the overall lack of leadership. And these are typically young people who've led in pretty tough situations uh, who actually, you know, uh, understand what pressure is. They understand what ambiguity is. They understand what complexity is. And I'm hoping that we can start to turn the number around, if you will, because I think that kind of a significant base, if you will, inside Congress can be very he healthy, not just for Congress, but for the country. So I'd want uh, to follow on on Richard's question. So, you know, you had two sons, both went to the Naval Academy. You're from a military uh, family. W one of the things, you know, Rich and I were civilians. We'd often, often sit in meetings with the military guys that would come over from the Pentagon. And it was always striking to me that I, I always thought it was a challenging deal. You had to, you know, you had to represent a certain culture, a certain way of doing business that's represented by the Pentagon. And then you come into a world that's very different. Were you aware of that sort of cultural divide and trying to be the kind of the person that could walk between those two worlds? Was that something that you felt 
uh, as part of your service? Well, there's two streams of thought on that. The first stream of thought, and Kurt, you were in the Navy, so I think you'll appreciate this, is, you know, I started deploying around the world my first ship, uh, and we deployed to Vietnam. I mean, that was my first war. Uh, but the, from the Navy's perspective, when you go to countries all over the world, you end up working with the country team. I mean, you you see this and you interface with this team long before I even really understood it uh, in a way that that essentially merges the two cultures, if you will, or requires the two cultures to be integrated. In, in many ways, I saw that my entire life. So as I became more senior... Uh, and got into you know pr some pretty significant jobs that involved uh, whether it was in Europe uh, uh, or or back here in the U.S. that involved uh, that kind of integration. It was pretty natural for me. So that's kind of one thing. I I just didn't have a problem with that. Uh, the the other piece that was surprising to me as chairman much more so than when I was a member of the Joint Chiefs because you don't get involved as we say across the river, that much as a member of the Joint Chiefs compared to as one-year chairman or vice chairman in particular. And when I people ask me, what's it like to be chairman and and or to go into the White House? And, uh, you know, I said, it's a great privilege. You know, a middle-class kid could grow up in this country and, and get to this position as a senior military advisor to the President of the United States on the one hand. On the other hand, when you walk into the White House, it's a foreign land for a <laughs> military yeah. guy and gal. <laughs> because you've got, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a, been doing this a long time. Every administration does this. I mean, it's politics, 24-7-365. That everybody that works there is trying to deliver political outcomes for the incumbent and the and the the administrative administration's party. That was a foreign place to me. And you theoretically, I mean, I'm I'm the only person in the room wearing a uniform, and uh, that was sh that was actually shocking to me. And so, man, trying to manage one a politically, and and then manage you know what I create my best advice, give my best advice in the middle of the advice that may or may not be well received either by the president or certainly the president's staff, and sometimes that's different in that regard was a real challenge. And th mm -hmm. but that's what I found to be most challenging and there's no training ground in yeah. modern times i think the only guy that understood that that took over the chairman's job was colin powell because mm -hmm. he'd been the national security advisor for right. bush 41 right other than that everybody's kind of walking into the <laughs> white house for the first time I want to draw you out a little bit more on that, Admiral. So a lot of senior military guys will say that the White House, you know, is about politics. But when we come back to the building, it's sort of a sort of a different deal. I, I wonder, you know, if you if you had some folks that were also in those meetings, they'd say, no, no, we we have politics, but they've got politics as well. But they the politics is defined in a different way. It's a different term different terms different issues different questions of what's important but the politics are very much evident there as well how would you respond to that i i think when you're in the white house you're talking political politics every institution military certainly isn't exempt from this has its own politics mm -hmm. what i didn't see in the military was the affirmation of one political view over another. I mean, I could look around yeah. at these four stars and three stars. 
I couldn't have told you, you know, they, most of them have voted many times. I, I couldn't have told you or have any idea what their political affiliation was. That's just the culture. I mean, it's how we're brought up. It's something I never gave any thought to, uh, you know, as I grew up because it just wasn't addressed. We didn't talk about it. We didn't even talk about it, you know, in small groups, even socially. You just stayed away from that wasn't us. Um, that doesn't mean we weren't concerned about the issues or we didn't have a view of it. So we had our own internal politics. That said, it wasn't what I would call big P, you know, big politics, politics for the country and the kind of politics and political issues that the president and the whole team had to deal with on a regular basis. One of the things that I remember pretty fondly that, that we got to do was these joint hearings with Secretary Clinton, Secretary yeah, Gates, yeah. and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen, which yeah. was pretty unique at the time to have all three officials testifying before the House and Senate. We may have done that four or five times. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. The one thing I remember you saying uh, was that if you had extra budget, you would have given it to the State Department. And I don't want to put a number yeah. in your head, but you even said, I think at one point, if you had $15 billion, you would give that to the State Department. And which, which seems so shocking and disarming to a lot of members of Congress who wanted to beat up on the State Department. Yeah. Just what's your rationale for feeling that way? Well, I, I mean, and, I, and Jim Mattis said this uh, in this administration, and it's how I, I've said it a number of times, Bob Gates, Bob, Bob Gates would support this. He just didn't want it to come off the Pentagon terms. <laughs> right, right, right. um, I don't know if I ever, I if I ever said publicly if I had, you know, I'll take $10 billion and give it to him. But I felt very strongly. First of all, the state had been, you know, had had been uh, beaten up for so long and their budget reduced. And, I, you know, I fundamentally believe that a dollar at State Department well spent uh, meant that you didn't have to spend an awful lot of money on the Pentagon. I mean, it, it is a team, and that's one of the reasons the three of us testified together. And I want to be in the support role, not in the war fighting role per se. And I want state and diplomacy uh, and all of that to lead uh, whatever the strategy is, right. whatever part of the world we're talking about. And I want the State Department to be well-funded for that. What people also don't, I don't think, focus enough on, State Department is... 90% people. I mean, you, and, and you can't, you can't, if you're going to cut the budget, you're going to cut their people. Right. And, and I'm a people guy. I'm a develop career development guy. I understand a lot about what that means, how you, how you recruit them, how you retain them, how you station them, how you incentivize them. Um, and the more we pushed back on that, the more we cut that, the worse shape the department. And I think the country was in. So it was very easy. It was a very easy argument for me to make as far as I was concerned from the standpoint of the best place to put your money. Yeah, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I thought we had crossed over the bipartisan divide on funding the State Department. In other words, I thought there was bipartisan consensus for fully funding diplomatic and development efforts. So I was, I was really surprised when this administration took, you know, 40, yeah. 45% cut right off the top. Yeah. Um, you also helped us think about national security in a different way. You broadened uh, the discussion on national security. You were talking about climate change. You were talking about national debt. You were talking about our internal divisions. Now, again, for a military guy, these are you know soft issues. You know, yeah. they're not the hard power issues, but they were important to you. And gosh, they contributed so much to our understanding of of why you know, we should be concerned about them. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how much 
how many times I use the phrase climate change. I mean, one of the things you learn in this job is there are certain words that are right. instantly politicized yeah. you never and polarizing. Uh, but certainly, uh, in fact, Fat Allen, who was the head of the Coast Guard, dear friend of mine, you know, in 2006, I think, he starts talking to me about the number of fish on the West Coast that are migrating up to the North Pole because the ice is melting, et cetera. It was the first time I really yeah. started to look at an issue. And and that has, actually, that has an impact for the Navy. Okay, if if the ice is melting and money's going there and there's a lot of money going there and the route over the top is shorter, we're going to have to pay some attention to that, just as an example, and mm -hmm. all the other things that are associated with that. And I was going through, I'm sort of an empirically-based guy. I mean, we had Katrina, we had Haiti, we had Fukushima. We, we were having seemingly an, an extraordinary number of quote unquote weather related events mm -hmm. in the world that, you know, there's something going on here. Mm -hmm. I hate to get into the debate about the science of it per se, even though I think the science is pretty good. The debt piece was, you know, I mean, I actually believe that if economies are doing well, there's much less likelihood. For, first of all, standards of living are going to improve. There's much less likelihood that instability will get generated, uh, and that makes less work for me. And I'm fine with that from a from a military standpoint. So I, I mean, one of the areas I worked pretty hard on when I was chairman was my relationship with Brazil, because Brazil was such an economic engine for a continent that we basically neglect, which baffles me no end. And I wanted their economy to do well. Um, so that we didn't have any kinds of, you know, longer term issues and problems. And obviously they've struggled since that time, just as an example. Um, I feel that way about China, although, you know, today, you know, China is the whole relationship with China, I think, is changing as we speak. I feel strongly these two, the two largest economies in the world have to figure out a way to to work together, to make it right. We don't have to be friends, but we've got to figure out how to make these two economic engines work for not just ourselves, but for the world. And I worry now that actually that's headed, you know, in the wrong direction. So the debt piece to me, and, and I, I get a lot of credit for this, but I mean, I'd actually study this issue. It wasn't a glib answer when this reporter asked. And I, I'd still, it was, I, I want to say, I think it was in 2010 that I got asked and it was maybe 10 trillion. Right. As we speak today, you know, it's 22 and right. it's just going out of sight high. I don't know how we pay our bills. I don't know, and I disagree with some pretty, pretty uh, strong, you know, academically based economists on this. Um, I, I just, I see it uh, as an issue that is going to just continue to threaten our future in ways that are difficult. It's easy to predict in some ways, and others that, that uh, are too hard. Sir Admiral, uh, just we were talking a little bit about Asia there, but so, you know, if you look back over the last 20 years, at, at least it would be my proposition that, you know, we've invested an unbelievable amount of our time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears in the Middle East. Yeah. Not clear we have a lot to show for it. And the history of this period, I think, could be written as really about a great power that goes off on a Kixotic adventure in the Middle East while another great power yeah. really builds remarkable capability and capacity in the Asia-Pacific region. So, look, I share with you, and I think we believe generally that the United States and China have to find a way to work together. Yeah. Um, my own anxiety about that is that I think many of our Chinese friends actually believe 
that we're in the midst of some kind of societal decline and that we're yeah. misdirected in terms of our approach. But as well, it is striking to me uh, when, when you talk about you know institutions inside China, uh, your sister service, the the PLA Navy, spends an enormous amount of time thinking about going to war with the United States and trains for it, prepares for it, and plans for it. Does that cause you anxiety, and does that cloud your view that the United States and China must find ways to work together? It doesn't cloud it. I'm I'm not far enough along in that regard because I know the PLA Navy, and it's better than it was, but still... You know, we we call our Navy a blue water Navy, global Navy. And yes, China's out and about a little bit, but it's going to be a while. Certainly how they think about what they're going to do. And there's, in terms of of taking care, uh, if you will, of their local water. South China Sea is a great example. Uh, And it's my view, they would like to see us leave. They'd just like to see us come home. And what I tell my Chinese friends and friends in that part of the world is we're not going anywhere. Um, I think we, in some cases, we have to be a little bit more realistic in terms of what we're actually doing. Uh, and, And I don't think we understand as well their concern about containment. Uh, yeah, I mean, we keep saying we're not containing them, yet we add more forces, you know, around them. That's not that the, the visual on that's pretty clear to me. Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that, th- again, I think the sort of the economic strategy needs to lead this, and then what do you? What are the other pieces? What's the diplomacy? What's the military? Uh, what are the strategic pieces you need to execute that strategy? I still think we have an awful lot of work to do to understand them. They are, I mean, I can remember 15 years ago, maybe close uh, 2000, 2001, about we sort of shifting our focus off of Russia at that point onto China and how little we actually knew. I'm talking on the, you know, really hard intel side. We just hadn't focused on them. And then I think, honestly, we have been distracted. And I I was in these wars and I would, you know, I would hear discussions or read about being distracted and then taking advantage of that and say, well, I, I, admit, I, I don't necessarily go along with it. But I think, in fact, that actually is what happened. And I don't think we're going to solve the Middle East. You know, when people ask me about the Middle East now, I think, and I'll use Tahir Square and Egypt as an example, but we could pick, you could draw, uh, you know, a starting line anywhere. You could use Iraq in 03. We're on a 40 or 50 year boil out there. And and we don't have a lot to show for it. Um, uh, I still worry, I mean, I, I worry a great deal about Saudi and, in fact, the price of oils. <clears throat> yes, we're much better than we used to be in terms of producing oil, but we're not going to control the price of a barrel, and we could get economically really hurt by that. And I think strategically we have to figure that, particularly when you have China, who is now sort of moved into the adversarial column, as far as I'm concerned, that's going to be consuming energy globally. It seems to me there's great potential for leverage there just in the relationships of all all those areas. I think the most important bilateral relationship on Earth for the 21st century is a relationship between U.S. and China. And we have to figure out a way to get it right. Mm -hmm. And right now it's not going in the right direction. insights let me um 
turn your attention to one other country that's gotten uh, a lot of uh, focus, and that's Russia. And uh, you and I were actually in Prague for the signing of the new new start. I treaty. remember it well. <laughs> I think we're the only <laughs> English speakers at a table of yeah. uh, a lot of Russian generals. Yeah. Somehow you managed to communicate with everybody. Um, but the the president. Uh, President Trump seems to have some degree of suspicion or disdain for a lot of the arms control agreements. Yeah. There's been some uh, doubt even about uh, whether he'd, he'd stay with New Start. Uh, what would you say to to folks that are questioning the value of some of the uh, agreements that we've entered into with the Russians in particular? Um, I I worry a great deal about this. I I. As you know, I mean, I spent a great deal of time negotiating the last treaty, so I'm, you know, I guess I'm embedded there, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm a little bit biased, but I think biased in the right direction from the standpoint of how critical that treaty is and how important it is to keep these weapons on the sidelines, you know, in the long term. Uh, and I worry a great deal, particularly if the discussion is what we just did in the INF treaty, the nuclear force treaty in Europe, is we just walk away from it. We did the same thing. We want the Russians, we want to have a relationship, although I understand that. But we did the same thing with the ABM treaty. You know, I woke up one morning and whenever it was, 2002, 2003, and all of a sudden we're out. Right. So why would they trust us? We did the same thing with recently with Iran. Outside the substance of the the treaties, which is which are critical as well, but we should be a trusted partner. I know we trust ourselves, but we should be a trusted partner in these kinds of things. I'm not sure why many people would do that right now. There's an easy, relatively easy opportunity here to extend the treaty to the the New Start treaty to 2025. Mm -hmm. That was one of the provisions that was in there. It was a hard negotiation. We got it to a good place. Neither side got exactly what we wanted, but we're not. We're not constrained in numbers right now. I mean, we have plenty of weapons. There's not, I don't think there's anything in that treaty that over that over that overly constrains us, certainly in terms of whether we'd use those those weapons in the future, which I certainly hope we absolutely never do. So it's a I, I worry that it is more ideological here than it is uh, overall. Right. I don't know where the president is, but I worry a great deal. It's the ideological piece that's driving this. And I think there's huge danger uh, uh, on the right hand side, if you will, downstream from that decision, if that's what we decide. Yeah, no, really important insights. And I hope people are, are listening to your words. It's just staying with some of the ideological challenges we're facing these days. Uh, one of those is the politicization of the military. And, uh, you know, we've seen it with, you know, troops being deployed to the southern border, whether you think that's a smart decision or not. There's some, at least according to the president, some political uh, advantage to that. Now, the one thing that's been reported on lately is that he is considering yeah. uh, pardons for troops that have been accused or charged or even found uh, guilty of war crimes violations, uh, violations of Geneva Conventions or UCMJ provisions. My assumption is he thinks this is politically popular thing to do. I, I'm just curious about what what your reaction to that is. As a you know, I, I have my own pretty sure. strongly held personal views about it. I have a great deal of respect. Uh, for the system, the justice system inside the military. And I think, and this is outside the, the specifics of what the president may or may not do, and I don't have a lot of details on 
the I think there are at three or four uh, potential uh, situ- cases that are being looked at based on what's in the press. But I think the chance, I think pardoning individuals who actually were handled inside our military justice system has great potential for undoing that military justice system. We in the military, and an example was used, actually was in a paper yesterday, and I think it's a great example, when Cali was identified by somebody else in the military, we have a culture where we know where the boundaries are, even in war, and we check at, we check at those boundaries. Uh, Cali's a good example. If you, and I know a little bit about the, one of the cases here, because when I was chairman, what those Marines did uh, in Iraq is way outside the boundaries of what's acceptable. Um, and most of this has been inside checks. So if you undo those inside checks, and from my perspective, yes, every war is different. Every war is complex. It, it, it's not because of these wars or these times at all. We know morally what's right and what's wrong. And nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, the military will check itself. I think if you now know there's uh, that from on high that this can get undone, I think there's great a great chance you'll undo that military justice system, which I've depended on and believe in literally my whole life. Yeah, I was a product of, of that system. I was a military lawyer in the yeah. Air Force. And and um, so I was pretty shocked when I saw the, the news reports um, yeah. come out. Admiral, those are powerful comments. I want to ask you about, about two things uh, that are related to that. So I, I, I agree that there are checks and balances, generally speaking, that yeah. work in the military. But I do wonder about the effect on a military institution on two things. One, uh, in a world in which they're basically in an endless war loop, deploying, engaging constantly. The recent stories on some of the stuff that took place within special forces was troubling in the sense that a SEAL community, the, the guys that identified a few bad actors. I mean, a lot of questions about what's going to happen to them subsequently. So I want to ask you about that. But then I also want to ask you a harder question. I'll I'll say it carefully. We talk about different institutions in our our country, what the impact of President Trump will be. Now, he's our president. He's our elected leader. Uh, I think we could make an argument that the military is separate from the larger society. It is also, you know, part of the larger society. But what impact or impacts do you think a, a a circumstance where we've essentially been in at war for 20 years yeah. and at the same time we now have a very unconventional commander in chief those are two substantial strains on the service what impact are they having well i i i take your point about we've been doing this a long time and we need to inside the military the military leadership needs to pay attention to what does that mean uh, very specifically you you also asked about uh, the 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 politicization of the military, which is something I have been hugely concerned about and have tried, you know, with every single opportunity to keep us in the middle on that and stay out of the politics of it. That's not our job. That's somebody else's job, specifically. Uh, and then I I think, you know, were I still on active duty or in the chairman's job, what I 
What I worry about is the uncertainty. I mean, the current commander-in-chief creates a great deal of uncertainty in almost every endeavor. I don't think he's politicized the Pentagon or the military at this particular point in time. Uh, he certainly hasn't um, seemingly gone after the military like he has the State Department or the Justice Department or the FBI or the intelligence world. And I worry a great deal about those institutions breaking down and us having to figure out how to rebuild them, you know, once we're, you know, once President Trump is no longer in office. Um, I, the, the military is sensitive to this. I've talked to some of the military leaders about this. They're okay. I mean, they're, they're comfortable in terms of, of it not reaching deep into the military in terms of actually politicizing it. Um, if, you know, part of back to sort of being at war for 20 plus years, because there is so much uncertainty, it's hard to know what you're going to do next. I mean, last week was a pretty bad week with respect to Iran. I don't know if it was the president or the national security advisor. They clearly weren't on the same page. And I was yeah. delighted at the end of the week when the president slowed it down dramatically. We don't, the, you know, one of the things I'd put at the top of my list is I don't need another war in the Middle East, especially with Iran. Um, so... I, that's how I would be thinking if I were there. Um, clearly, things have changed with respect to Iran in, in lots of dimensions, including, I think, in the, on the military side. So we need to get that right. But I, I guess if I were, you know, if, again, if I were in the chair, and I'm not, what I would be most concerned is just about the uncertainty day to day about what we're really going to do. Uh, Admiral, and this has been terrific. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've really enjoyed our conversation with you. And actually, we're, we're going to say something different. We really hope to have you back again some point. So thanks, thanks for uh, coming in. It'd be amazing if you, if you could come back. And I'll just say personally, again, a uh, huge role model for, for thousands, uh, especially uh, for the two of us uh, here. And, and, um, and, and really, just it's been a great privilege for me thanks. to be able to uh, follow you around to hearing rooms and, and Prague and other, other places. So, Well, you guys have done great work. I don't consider myself a role model to you guys, and it's terrific to be back with you. So thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, all for now. Thank you. Thank you.